Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So I'm going to ask you to just follow along with me tonight on the screen and with your heart, with your whole heart. Uh, I don't have a, a specific text or passage to have you to turn to, though we will have a few that we read from uh, and a couple of verses here and there, but I believe that you'll hear the message uh, that the Lord has laid on my heart for you um, as, we, as we talk for a few minutes and then move into uh, communion later on. Um, I have a title for the message. It's called uh, Crucified Expectation. There was a, back just a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2017, there was a, a man by the name of, of Brian McFarland, and he had this idea that he wanted to promote and put on an epic concert that would make Woodstock look small. And his vision was that he would rent an island of the Bahamas or purchase one, whichever he could do, and that he would secure the highest uh, you know, name, the biggest name bands, and, and then he would uh, market this thing to be like a three-day long or a week-long event where people would come. They would uh, stay in the highest luxury accommodations that were like these villas on the beach. They would eat the best food. They would be partying alongside of uh, the band members and a bunch of models and famous Instagram people. And he had this elaborate vision of something that he wanted to do. And he was able to sell the idea to investors who then fronted him money in order to uh, put on this concert. The problem is that what he did is he spent uh, almost all of the $26 million that was invested in building expectation for the event. And he didn't have enough money left over to secure the accommodations, uh, pay for the food, buy the bands, all of that kind of thing. And so he paid supermodels, influencers, people on social media uh, to take pictures of themselves to promote this whole thing. And then he had no money left. And when the time for the concert came, there was no concert. And so these people that had paid sometimes upwards of $100,000 for the premium uh, luxury experience, they landed in the Bahamas uh, and they found a few cheap tents that had been blown over by a storm the night before. They were given grilled cheese sandwiches and most of the people had nowhere to stay and all of the bands had backed out. And so uh, Billy McFarland, if he's listening to this message, he's listening from a jail cell right now. Um, because what he did is that he created this amazing expectation, but then he was unable to deliver. Expectation without deliverance. And so my text tonight is one verse from Proverbs chapter 23. It's verse 18, and it's this. The Lord speaks it by his spirit, and he says this. He says, for surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Surely there is an end, and your expectation shall not be cut off. Now, none of us are unfamiliar with the idea of a failed expectation. I mean, that's something that we're acquainted with our entire lives. 
We start off as children and we have these fairy tale fantasies of what we'll be when we grow up. And as we grow into that grown up version of ourselves, we realize that our expectations didn't pan out exactly the way that we thought. We have expectations of a career that we have the same feeling eventually, of a spouse and of a marriage, of what our kids are going to become. And we kind of are familiar with the feeling of expectation that doesn't quite pan out the way that we hoped or the way that we thought. Now, here we are on Good Friday, and among other things, one of the greatest things that Good Friday represents is what at least appeared to be one of the greatest failed expectations of all time with the crucifixion of the Son of God. Because the very reason why God created the world in the first place, that he said light be and light was, the very first words came out of God's mouth were a prophecy of the Son of God who would come into the world. There was expectation on day one. Everything that God made in the Garden of Eden, everything that was promised throughout the Old Testament, all of the pictures that were painted by what happened to the characters that were there, all of the words of the prophets that were spoken, though they couldn't see it clearly, it says that they were looking forward to something that they couldn't quite understand as yet. But the entirety of man's history prior to the coming of Christ was a building of expectation for when the Son of God would come into the world. And it was epic. There was a few that saw it. Abraham caught a glimpse of it, and he understood. David had a glimpse of it. You read 2 Samuel chapter 12, and he understood what was going to happen when Jesus would come. Some of the prophets had a glimpse of it, but there was this amazing expectation that was building throughout old history. And then would come the time when Christ would come into the world. And the very coming of Christ was this epic building of expectation. There was an appearance of angels. There was a star that stood over Bethlehem. There was a visitation that came to Mary that told her the nature of the child that was in her womb. And, and, and it was said that peace on earth and goodwill towards men, that which has been chased after and sought after, is going to be brought by the son that would come. She said that his name would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. That's an amazing level of expectation. When Jesus was 12 years old, there was such promise in the life of this child who was sitting with the doctors and the lawyers and the chief priests in the temple and who was expounding to them he was expounding to the experts the mysteries of the Bible and, and, and to a point where they marveled inside and they looked at him not knowing who he was but having a, a sense of expectation that whoever he is, he is something. He's going to do something. He's going to be someone. When his ministry would begin and he would start the very first miracle that he would do wherein he would manifest who he was was the turning of water into wine. And, and the declaration in that miracle is that he saved the best for last. That's a, a, a phrase that cries out expectation that something great is coming yet in the future at the end. As he walked with his disciples for the three and a half years that he was on the earth, 
As they would walk with him day by day, their expectation would grow as more of who he was was revealed to them. And so they would see that he had power over sickness and infirmity. He had power over natural law. He had power over elements. He would walk on water. And day by day, as more and more of him was revealed, the expectation of what was coming was growing. And then the epic six-month journey, the last six months of the life of Christ on earth, when he traveled from Galilee down, or we say up, even though he was moving south, up to Jerusalem was an epic six-month build as he would go from village to village, giving more of a glimpse of what was to come. His disciples discerned, this is the Christ. We're going into Jerusalem We're going to set up a kingdom. The days of David and Solomon have returned. The king has come. And on Palm Sunday, less than a week before Jesus would lay down his life, as he would make his triumphal entry coming down from the Mount of Olives, riding upon a donkey, they wouldn't even allow the feet of the beast to touch the ground, spreading palm branches in the way. And they would cry out saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings, for the Lord has come. And it was a declaration of him being the Christ, the Messiah. The expectation was at its epic pinnacle. And for the disciples, the anticipation was so great. For the religious people, it was apprehension. But no one was indifferent. And then all of a sudden, after Jesus rides in, He spends a few days tying up a few loose ends of things that needed to be fulfilled. He disappears into an upper room with his disciples, and the scene goes silent. And the next time he would reappear, he would be under Roman control, bound with ropes, wearing a crown of thorns, bearing the robes and the marks of one who had just been tortured, being led out down the Via Della Rosa, carrying his own cross, where his disciples, his followers, his enemies, and all of the rest of the people that were alive and awake at that time watched this man who had been epically set forward, through whom expectation had risen for so long, and they watched their expectation be nailed to a cross. And this one who was to save his people from their sins apparently wasn't even able to save himself as he was there. The cross had took place and the death of all expectation followed with it. The reason for all of creation was seemingly failed at this point and come to nothing. And the hope of all of those who had set their eyes and placed their faith in Jesus Christ was now coming to nothing. Even his disciples at this point, realized that something has gone way wrong here. This isn't according to plan. Even Peter, who seems to have been the chief among them, who, as we read in the Gospels, we realize that he was one to whom was given a place of supreme leadership, that even Peter went on LinkedIn and started looking for a job. He said, I'm going back to work. Judas, who was one who was sitting even next to Christ at the Last Supper, he saw that what was going to happen before it even took place, and he decided that he would cash in on his experience and on the influence that he has as being one, and even he decided that he would make money. He would write a book called Finding Jesus. 
that's funny, but you got to think about it for a minute, that he would then sell and give to the, 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 you know, the, the, the enemies that would come and get him. There were others that formed a support group. They didn't know what to do with their lives at this point, and so they went into to the rooms and, and waited. There were others that said, we just need to get away for a couple of days. Everyone was affected by this seemed cutoff of expectation. Some of them were scandalized, some of them were confused. Some of them were relieved, <laughs> the enemies. But nevertheless, Jesus went to a cross. His blood was spilled on the ground. He gave up the ghost. He died, and he was put into a tomb. And he left the whole world wondering, what in the world is going on here? Why is the Savior in a tomb? And we ask the same question. We say, why, God, did you choose to do it this way? Why would you lead up in such an amazing way and then allow the cross to be the way in which things were done? Why did you do it this way? And the answer is practical, and the answer is important. And the answer is because if Jesus is nothing more than just the Lord, then he doesn't need to do that. If he's simply the one that spoke everything into existence and controls everything with his word, the word of his mouth, then there is no need. He can just go into Jerusalem and he can overthrow the authorities and he can make himself the king if he's just the Lord. But he's not just the Lord. Because what the angel told Mary when Jesus was conceived, she said that his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And in order for Jesus to save his people from their sins then that means there's more for him to do than simply exercise his authority and his ability as Lord. He needs to become a lamb. I read to you from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and explains to us why Jesus had to go to a cross, why it was necessary. It says that Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle in contrast to the Old Testament tabernacle of worship, not made with hands, that is to say, of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. I want you to mark those words at the end of verse 12 there, the words for us, because it explains who he was doing it for. He goes on to say, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, speaking of the Old Testament system where they would sacrifice animals, then, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, the cross, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There are three very important things that are spoken in that passage. It says in verse 14, it says that he offered himself without spot for us. 
You can summarize that whole passage in those three phrases. He offered himself without spot for us. And that's the very reason why Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. It's the without spot part that makes all the difference. Because here was the law that God had laid down that he cannot violate being a just God. Is that the wages of sin is death. And because Adam sinned, death passed upon all of his descendants, making all of humanity subject to the law of sin. And if the penalty for sin is death, then it leaves every human being under a death sentence. But there was one provision in the law. And the provision of the law is that you could have a substitute. That if you could find an innocent substitute that would die in your place, that would take the penalty, in a sense, make the payment for your sin and take your place in death, that you could righteously receive their place of innocence. But that presented an interesting challenge in a world that was full of sinners because even if someone was willing to trade places with me, they had to be without spot. And if someone wasn't perfect, then they're not qualified to trade. And because I'm a man, an animal isn't sufficient to pay the price in full. It can cover for a season, but once I sin again, I'm in trouble again. And so what Jesus Christ did in being cut off and in going to the cross is that he offered himself without spot for us that we might obtain eternal redemption through him. That's the gift of God. That's why Jesus Christ had to go to the cross because he wasn't just the Lord, but that he was also the Savior. But do you know there's another reason why Jesus went to the cross? It wasn't just because he's Savior and it's not just because he's Lord, but there's a third office that Jesus Christ takes up There's a third place that Jesus wants to have in our life, not just to be the Lord and the one who saves us, but he promises that he's also to be our shepherd. Psalm chapter 23, it's a famous one. What does David say? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said of himself, he said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. What is the ministry or the job of a shepherd? They lead. They show the way. They guide, they protect, they overshadow. And part of what Jesus was doing on the cross, not just paying for our sins, but he was also leading, pioneering a path that every one of us also must walk in. The Apostle Paul explains it in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read you this passage. And again, it's a it's somewhat well-known passage, but I want you to just listen to what the Apostle Paul says in this context of how the cross of Christ translates not just into my destiny in heaven, but into my walk in life on earth. Because the cross means something to me now. Listen to Paul. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he connects the two. It's not just what Jesus did, but it's a mentality that I'm to obtain myself. He says of Jesus, who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God, meaning that he fully acknowledged that he was who he was, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, we don't have time tonight to talk about how big of a step down that is for God to become a man, but it's a big step down. And it says that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That was the first thing he did, is that he was obedient to the cross. But then in verse 9, he says, Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. He says that there were two things that Jesus did. He went to the cross and it was in the cross. It was the pathway of the cross that then led to his exaltation. He humbled himself as a servant, became obedient to the death of the cross. Wherefore, that is because of this, Because of the cross, God also highly exalted him. And what Paul is telling you and I here is not simply something that we already know that Jesus did, but he's telling us that we're to have this mind in us also. What mind? That the way to exaltation is through execution. That the path to Resurrection Sunday leads through Good Friday. That the cross is an ingredient in bringing us to the place that God wants to lead us. And it's an unavoidable passageway. The cross is important, not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification and for the plan that God has for us in our life. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus gave us a commandment. He said this, He said that if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him take up his cross and follow me. That is the call. That is where it begins for you and I to meet with him at his cross, to be saved by his sacrifice, but then to receive his call to take up our cross. Now, I watched most of you come in here tonight. And I didn't see even one of you, not one, carrying a cross. Yes, some of you have a Jesus piece, you know, around your neck. You're carrying it maybe on your T-shirt or something. But not one of you came in here tonight carrying your cross. What does he mean by take up your cross and follow me? No one came in here tonight carrying a cross, but there are some of you that came in here tonight and you're straining under the weight of being in a loveless marriage. And you're staying in it because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You give and you give and you give. And yet there's more that's taken and taken and taken. And you feel like there's nothing left for you to give. To some of you that came in here tonight and you're still believing, you're still following Jesus, even though you have kids that are out there that you're waiting for them to return. Some of you tonight are still walking with him. You're still praising him, even though he hasn't come through on the expectation of the promises that he's given you. And we read the scriptures and God purposefully lays out for us these amazing things that he wants to do within our lives. 
He tells us of the things that he did for Abraham and for Joshua and for Daniel and for the prophets and for, you know, and we look at these things and God didn't set these things here just as a trophy that we could say, wow, that's special. It must be nice to be them. But God lays those things out that we might have hope of what it means to be a follower of his in this life while we're passing through. And sometimes our expectation isn't coming to pass. You know, one of the most amazing people in the story of this passion was Mary who came to the tomb of Jesus early in the morning because she was struggling with something inside coming to that tomb that morning. I mean, just think about the amount of faith that it took for that woman to make those steps bearing those spices to that tomb because inside she knew all of the things that Jesus had promised her. She knew all of the things that she had realized that had been revealed to her by the Spirit of God of what was to come. And now he was in a tomb, and it seemed like all of that was dead, but it didn't stop her from worshiping him and having hope. She didn't want to dishonor Jesus. And I know that that's a familiar feeling to many of us. We sit here, and sometimes we listen to something that a preacher says, or we watch the glory that's being laid upon someone else's life. And we hear the promises of God, but then we go home and we get alone and we realize that that's not the experience that I'm having with God. He's not doing in my life or fulfilling the expectation that, 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 that I had hoped that he would do in my life. And to carry my cross means that I still praise him even though I'm bleeding inside. And that's your cross. Whatever makes you bleed, whatever makes you feel that crushing pain, that's your cross. But here's the reason why God calls us to the cross. Because when we endure the cross, it's a stop on the way towards the glory that's to come. You say, why does God do it this way? What, what is this, Jedi training or something? Like we have to suffer in order to be glorified? Is it like a cosmic rite of passage? Like we have to prove ourselves and get like our scar merit badge and it's like, you know, boot camp for the spiritual army battalion, you know, and, and until I suffer. Why does God ordain it that the pathway to expectation pass through the place of execution, the place of the cross? The first reason why is because the cross does something very important in our lives and it has to happen. Here's what it does, is that it causes hope to move beyond the realm of human capability. It causes hope, listen carefully to that phrase, to move beyond the realm of human capability. Listen to what David said in Psalm chapter 62, verse 5. He said these words. He said, my expectation comes from him. The thing that I'm waiting for God to do in my life, the revelation of his person to me in a more real and living way, the fullness of abundant life that he's promised me through his spirit, the power over this addiction that I'm struggling with and trying to lay down, the thing that I'm expecting that God promised that he would do that I'm waiting upon, David said, my expectation comes from him. Listen. The reason why the disciples were sorrowful on that Good Friday and then that following Saturday is because something happened in their life that moved hope out of the realm of human capabilities. 
See, none of them had the power to bring Jesus back to life. If Jesus had simply been arrested, that's maybe manageable. We can get a crowd of people. We can storm the castle. We can get him out. We'll spring him. We'll get him free. But when he was dead and he gave up the ghost and was put in the tomb, their expectation being crucified was moved out of the realm of their capability to do anything about it. And sometimes God, in bringing us to the place of our cross, brings us to the place where our hope has to be only in him because there is no human help. I'm amazed sometimes at how quick I am to accept the status quo. Well, things are the way they are. God is sovereign. If he wanted to change it, he could. Therefore, it is what it is. Anybody ever said that before? It is what it is. But then I read the Bible. And when I look at the Bible and I see the things that God has done for his people in times past, I see that we serve a God who delights to do things like open up a Red Sea and let his people cross it. That is not the status quo for the Red Sea to open. I look at the Bible sometimes and and I look at the things that God did and I see how in one night he sent an angel into the camp of an enemy army and he just killed 180,000 men. Boom, one angel just, oh, you guys want victory? Okay, you'll win. That's not the status quo. I see God honoring the faith of a group of lepers who walk into a village hungry in the middle of a famine thinking that we could either die of leprosy or die of starvation. We might as well do something. And God said, I like that. He said, it says that he made a noise And everybody in the village got spooked and they ran away and four lepers go into the village and eat hot food that's been prepared and laid out on the table for them. I read about a God in the Bible who multiplies a minuscule amount of loaves and fishes and he feeds a multitude with it. He makes much of what's little. I read about a God who met with a man who needed some instruction and some vision for how he was going to go about doing the next thing that he was called to do. And he needed help because the eyes of the entire family were on him and he didn't know what to do. And Jesus met him personally, told him what to do, and told him what would happen with such specificity that Joshua was able to say, yeah, we're going to walk around seven times once a day for seven days, seven days, we're going to walk around seven times, the walls are going to fall and we're going to take the city. And God had laid that out so clearly to him that the people said, huh, sounds good to us, let's try it. And God made the walls of a city fall down, honoring the faith of a man. I think of the level of specificity that God gave to Moses. Moses said, God, I need a vision. I'm up on the mountain, I'm seeking you. He said, oh, you want a vision? I'll give you a vision. You're going to build me a tabernacle. You're going to cover it with badger skins. The sockets are going to be this side. It's going to be covered with gold. It's going to be, you know, I don't want to say the word. It sounds bad. Acacia wood. That's New King James. Covered with, you know, and and God gave him to the detail. I want the coverings to be purple. I want the door to be this wide. It's going to set here. The tribes are going to be encamped in this place. And was going, okay, okay, slow down. Right there, you know, okay. And then what do we do? The status quo. We say, God, could you just give me some vision? Maybe, Maybe I'll get fired today and that'll just be your leading in my life. He is a God who wants to break the status quo. He's willing. He put these things here so that we would believe him. But listen, sometimes he brings us into an impossible situation, not so that we can die there, but so that our expectation can only be filled through him. He's the one that brings us there. He's the one that does it. And the cross in my life, my cross shouts to me that it might be Good Friday now, but Easter Sunday is coming. My expectation is from him. 
There's something gained that's even greater, that's even more valuable than the fulfillment of an expectation. I have seen in my own life and in the life of my brothers and sisters, I have seen the expectation come, the thing that's been waited for. And somehow that just isn't quite satisfying. It's not quite enough, but there's something more glorious about the cross. And Paul describes the effect that the cross had in his own life in Philippians chapter 3. And I just want to read you Paul's testimony as he can kind of testifies of, of his own cross of his own execution, and and what made him bleed, what was hard for him. And he describes everything that he had built into his life, all of his education, all of his background, all of the pride of his achievements and attainments, his mental acuity and status, his wealth and riches, everything that he had. And when he came to Christ, all of it vaporized, all of it vanished. He became nothing. And I want you to listen to what Paul says concerning that cross in his life. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. I would give up everything willingly and gladly. Why? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's just King James to me, to know Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them as dung. Now, that's King James. You might be reading the one that says trash, rubbish, junk, you know. I like dung because it really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Paul says, when I think about all the things that I had in my life that I lost, the nights of sleep that I was up crying, waiting for the breakthrough to come in my life, when I think about the pain that my crushing cost me. And I put that on one side of the scale. And then I put what I received on the other side of that same scale. I see that the two things can't even be placed on the same scale because the scale breaks. It's just, I count it as dung. It doesn't even, it's worthless. There's no even contest in it. He says, I count it but dung that I may win Christ. And then he says this in verse nine. He says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable into his death. Paul says that the cross in my life was not only for me the wherefore that brought me to his plan for me to know what it was that my expectation would be fulfilled, But the even greater thing that happened when I came through the cross, when I endured my cross, he says four things took place. He says, number one, I was found in him. I want you to think about how valuable that is. Most of the world spends all of their energy and resources trying to find themselves. And Paul says, when I came to the cross, it was there that I found myself. I found my definition. I found my purpose. I found my place in the wall. I found the place where I finally fit and belong. I found the reason why I exist. That thing that was never settled in my life found its resting place in Christ when I came to the cross. He says, secondarily, he says that I might know him. To have a relationship, I'm not talking about an intellectual capacity. I'm not talking about being able to blurt out facts about someone. He says that I might know 
the eternal God. I want you to think about that. He's the everlasting God. He's from everlasting to everlasting, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He calls himself the I am because he will not be confined to human definition. And he invites us with desire into a relationship with himself where he wants us to know him. That's his desire. It starts at the cross. He said, thirdly, the power of his resurrection. Do you know what that is? That's the fulfillment of the expectation. See, resurrection is outside the realm of our ability. I don't know any of you that can raise the dead in here. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can bring that level of life. And he says, when I came to the cross, I found that that's where the power was. And then finally, number four, he says, the fellowship of his suffering. He said, in my crushing was the place where I met him the closest. It was at the cross that my place of communing with him began. We're going to take communion here tonight, and I'm going to tell you something, is that the best thing that you and I have, or the best thing that you and I can have if you don't already have Jesus in your life, the best thing that we can have is to be in communion and in right relationship with him, to know him. That is the pearl of greatest price. Everything else that's good in life flows out of that. And the amazing thing is that this is what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to thrive in a close relationship with him because of his forgiveness and because of his cross. And here's what he knows tonight and what we're reminded of on this Good Friday as we remember his cross is that the place of our bleeding is the womb of, of seeing our greatest expectation come forward and to see life really begin. We're going to do this a little bit differently than we normally do for communion. You'll notice that by each of your sections here in the front, and then also if you look around, if you're sitting in the back of the room to the back, the ushers are there. They already have the the, the bread and the wine in hand. And what we're going to do is we're going to worship. Lori and the team is going to lead us in a song or two. And we're going to worship the Lord. And as you feel led of the Lord tonight, as you feel his prompting, you just feel free to get up out of your seat and and make your way. Don't make it a line. Just as you feel led of the Lord, you come and, and take and then go back to your seat and wait. And then we'll take communion together. But just to give us a chance to not move right away or, you know, but just to contemplate and allow God to, to move in our hearts tonight as we wait upon him. Oh, Father, we thank you tonight for the communion of your body and of your blood. We thank you, Lord, that it was so precious to you to see us here at this time, that even from the foundation of the world, Lord, you saw us here, knowing the number of hairs on our head, having more thoughts towards us than the grains of sand that are on the seashore, knowing every decision, every thought we would make, knowing the sins and the mistakes, the failures, knowing the shame that we carry, Lord, knowing the cross and the pain that we honor you with, Lord, while we yet believe. Oh, Lord, you know everything about our life. And yet, Lord, in this place here, in this time, oh, Lord, you meet with us in the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup. And we ask you, Lord, that as we partake of this communion on this Good Friday night, that you would make Jesus abundantly more real to us. Lord, that you would open our eyes to see who you are that we would comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you would teach us what it means to plant our roots firmly within that love, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And as we're here tonight, Lord, there's many of us that our roots have been damaged. 
They've been cluttered and clogged by trying to draw up other things and fill ourselves in other ways. And many of us tonight, Lord, we need our roots to be healed. And we ask, Lord, that as we partake of this communion tonight, Lord, you would heal those areas of our life and that you would teach us, Lord, to receive the fullness of that which will never be fully understood or fully explained. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fill us with your love. If you call us, Lord, to be rooted in it, then we know that you're willing to help us receive it. And so would you open the eyes of our understanding? Would you dwell in our hearts by faith? Would you manifest your presence here in this moment and in this time? Thank you so much, Jesus, for your cross. You give us faith to believe that the things that we ask for, that you will yet do. And so whatever condition we come with, Lord, meet with us here in this communion. The Bible tells us that it was on the night that he was betrayed. And the Bible emphasizes that it was on the night that he was betrayed. And the reason why that point is emphasized, because that part of the whole thing hurt as bad as any other part of the whole thing. When you read in the Psalms about the heart of him that sat at the table with me, the one in whom was my sweet friend, we took counsel together. And yet he was betrayed by the one that he loved. He was forsaken even by those who knew him the closest. He knew that was coming. And yet he still went forward with what he was about to do because he knew that it would be the key to bringing them close. It says he took bread. Bread is wheat in its fullest processed state that brings forth bread to the strengthening of man. Bread is the life and the strength of man. And Jesus called himself the bread of life and he said on that night, he said, this is my body, this bread, and it is broken for you. He called himself the bread of life because he said, I am the bread of God that gives my life unto the world. And then he did the unthinkable. He let it go out of his own hand and control. The strength of life that had been carefully processed and cultivated in himself and he gave it freely to those that couldn't buy it, that didn't deserve it, that would never be able to earn it. And he said, I want you to not just hold me in your hand, but I want you to internalize my life and take the strength of who I am and make it yours. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And it was his delight to give it. Let's partake tonight of the body that was broken for us. Telling us to do this in remembrance of him. He took the cup. All of them had no idea. They'd never been to a communion service before. And they watched him pick it up, and we don't know what it looked like. But filled probably with wine, real wine, he took it up. And he said to them, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant that comes to you through my blood. The wine 
a representation, a symbol of the blood coursing through his veins, the perfect, pure, sacrificial lamb that was about to spill it out on the ground, even for the very people that would nail him to the cross. Why wine? You know why? Because wine is, is the useful, the most useful part of the vintage. I mean, if you think about the lifespan of a grape, right? It's planted, it's cultivated, then it's harvested, then it's stomped, then it's filtered, then it's fermented, and then it's aged. And it's brought to its fullest capacity where it's the most useful, where it has the most effect. And that's what Jesus was. His blood, he'd been planted as a tender shoot coming up from the ground. He had lived his life grown up in perfection and innocence. He would be stomped by the ones that would crucify him. His blood would pour out. It would have an effect upon those that would take it in. And it would be the perfect thing, the satisfying thing, the final thing that anyone would need. And he said, this is the cup of my life, my blood. It's spilled out for you. And then he said, take and drink. And we get to be the beneficiaries of what he provided, the substitute for our sins as we receive of his blood. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so on this night, this Good Friday night, as we march towards Easter Sunday, we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And we receive the gift that he provided and we partake together as one body, as one family of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's partake together. They were disoriented, they were confused, they were afraid. Their expectation had been cut off. But within three days, their expectations would be exceeded. And the word that I want you to hear tonight, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 18, for surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Isn't he worthy? Let's stand together tonight. We're going to close in song. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.